a privilege we have to bless these children that God has given to us and uh, that God has given us the responsibility for as a church family. It's an awesome privilege and an awesome blessing. Do you know that when you and I get to heaven, God is going to ask us three questions? you realize that? As we read the Scriptures, we know that the first question Jesus is going to ask us, or God is going to ask us, is what did we do? What did you do with my son Jesus? Did you trust Him? Did you come to Him in faith, believing that He is God sent in human form to earth and that He died on the cross to take on the consequences of your sin, of my sin? God's going to ask us, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? What did you do with my son Jesus? There's a second question He's going to ask us, and that is, what did you do with what I gave you? And that comes from Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents and the gifts. And God is saying to you and to me that He's given us spiritual gifts. He's given us a heart or a passion uh, to use those gifts for certain people in certain ways and in the ways He calls us to. He's given us abilities. He's given us a personality. He's given us all kinds of experiences in which He has shaped us with all of that to be difference makers in this world. To reach out in the name of Jesus and to love others and to bless them. He's going to ask us, what did you do with what I gave you? There's a third question he's going to ask, and that is, who did you bring with you? Because there are no hearses, there are no U-Hauls attached to hearses. Right? We can't bring our money, we can't bring our possessions with us to heaven. The only thing we can bring with us to heaven is people. That's all that's going with us to heaven. And I believe God is going to ask us, Who did you bring with you? Who did you invite into a life-changing, an eternity-changing relationship with Him? You see, God wants us to be ready to know what we've done with Jesus in our lives. He wants us to be ready for that day when we come to meet Him face-to-face. But He also wants us helping others to be ready for that day as well. And He has a mission for us. And that mission is to bless other people. And that mission began with the words of God to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, where God says to him, Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. And he says, I'm going to bless you and make you famous. And you, he says, will be a blessing to others. All the families on earth, in fact, he says, will be blessed by you. God wants us to be a blessing to others. And Jesus picks up on that theme in the Great Commandment where He talks about one of the two greatest commandments. He says to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, our minds. And out of the overflow of that, then we love our neighbor as ourselves. And loving our neighbor is one of our core values as a church. We have six core values we're seeking to live into now. And one of those is to love our neighbor. And the way we do that is to bless them. And we've taken that word bless and put it together as an acronym where the B is begin with prayer. We begin praying for people around us. And the L is for listening with care. We come around them and we listen to their needs and their hurts and their concerns that they have as they live life in this world. And the E is for eating together. Maybe we have coffee with people or go for ice cream or we eat a meal with them as we get a chance to come around them and build relationship and listen. And then the S is for serving them with love, meeting their needs, and helping them out where we can. And the other S then is 
for sharing the story, for telling others the good news of Jesus. And then along with that, he says at the end of his time here on earth to his followers before he goes up to heaven, he says, go into the world and bless others, in other words. Share the story with them. Help others come to know me. Bring others, all people groups, make them disciples of mine. Share Jesus with them, in other words. And then help them grow in their life and baptize them, which is incorporating them into the family of God, into this expression that we have here at Community Covenant Church. That is what Jesus wants us to be about. And that's what Jesus talks about to the next church in our series here in Revelation, as we are looking at what Jesus says to these seven churches that are here on the map, these seven churches in Asia Minor, an area that we know of today as Turkey. And we've been looking at each of the letters that are there in the book of Revelation that John pens, the vision of Jesus, the words of Jesus to the church. And today we come to the church of Sardis. And we hear Jesus' words to a church that is asleep, it's not being a blessing to others. And he calls them to wake up, to be difference makers for Jesus in people's lives as we live out the mission that God has for us to fulfill for Him here on earth. Jesus calls the church at Sardis to confront spiritual complacency and compromise zeal in their lives and in the life of the church. And if you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, you can do that. If you don't have your Bibles, these passages will come up on the screen that we look at today, Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. But let's look together first at the first three, uh, uh, first three verses of Revelation 3, where John says Jesus' words to the angel of the church at Sardis write, these are the words of Him who holds the seven spirits of God, the seven stars. I know your deeds, He says. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time. I will come to you. What Jesus is saying is, hey, get going, Sardis, with being about what I want you to be about. And in telling his followers in Sardis that they're asleep and they need to wake up, what he's doing here is he's drawing on their history. He's drawing on their geography, as we can see from this picture that comes up. As this is where Sardis was. Sardis was at the top of that mountain. They built the city at the top of that mountain. And that mountain is actually two, in two sections. There's one section where the city was built, and that was called the Acropolis. And then on the other section, another hill that looks very similar to it, that's all part of that, was what they called the Necropolis. It was the cemetery, where archaeologists say were about as many as about a half a million graves there on the top and in those hills. And we know that what Jesus was doing was drawing on that geography and what the area was like when he says to them, hey, you think you're alive, but you're dead. 
In other words, he's saying, you think you're like what you are in the Acropolis, in this city that is thriving and alive, but you're really more like what is on the hill next to you there in the cemetery. And then after he talks about that, he's saying to them, in a sense, what he's saying is, hey, you're just playing a religious game, church at Sardis. You think everything's good. You think it's all good and everything's okay. And we're, we're, we've got it. We're doing it the right way. And he's saying you don't have a passion to make a difference in people's lives, to invite people into a life-changing, eternity-changing relationship with me. He's saying to them, you aren't fully devoted followers. You're just simply a safe, sleepy, little community of fellowship that doesn't particularly want any supernatural interventions or interruptions into, uh, into your life by the Holy Spirit. You just kind of want to live in your nice, comfortable, dignified, religious state. See, Titus was a benign group of believers committed to keeping everything in their church looking good and, and proper. It was really what we could call today a, a spiritual country club. A spiritual country club. A, a church with compromised zeal. A, a passionless fellowship. A comatose community of believers. And Jesus says to them, wake up and watch. And then he says at the end of verse 3, if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you'll not know at what time I will come to you. And having drawn on the geography of Sardis, he now goes to drawing on the history of Sardis. Because you see, history, uh, Sardis was, was on an Acropolis where they seemed uh, invulnerable. I mean, how are you going to attack that? How are you going to take over that? And yet, two times in history, it happened. And it happened because the people were asleep. They weren't paying attention. They weren't awake to what was happening. And one of those times history tells us was when the Persian army under Cyrus attacked the uh, city and sieged the city. But they couldn't, they, obviously they couldn't get up there because the walls were too uh, steep. And so they were at a standstill. And one night, one of the Persian soldiers was watching from below and watching the soldiers up on the north side of the wall. And he saw one of the Sardinian soldiers' helmets fall off and it rolled partway down the hill. And then about 15, 20 minutes later, suddenly this soldier appears out of nowhere, picks up his helmet, goes back up the hill just a bit, and then disappears. And the soldier thinks, wow, there's got to be an entrance into the city that we don't know about this yet. And so they go and they tell Cyrus and they put together a band of special forces and there in the middle of the night they go up to that area where the soldier had seen the Sardinian soldier picking up his helmet and there they found the gate and the people were asleep and they weren't awake. They weren't watching. And as a result, they broke in through that gate and the Persian army overcame the Sardinian people and the city fell. And about 200 years later, it happened again. This time it was the Greek army that was attacking the Acropolis. And this time they came... Yep, that's, that's right. Go back to where you were. This is kind of the excavated picture of uh, that north side of the wall. Now, it's, the walls are a lot smaller now because that was a couple thousand years ago. But what a soldier from the Greek saw was some soldiers up on the north side of that wall threw over the wall the carcass of a dead animal. And he saw the buzzards come down and eat off of that carcass, and then they flew up and they sat on the north wall. 
and you realize, hey, if those buzzers will sit up there on the wall, nobody's up there watching. And again, they put together a band of special forces, and those forces went up to the top of that area, and they were able to get over the wall, and again, the city fell. They weren't awake. They weren't vigilant. They weren't watching. And Jesus says, drawing all of the, on all of that, He says to Sardis, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. But if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you won't know at what time I will come to you. What would a person in Sardis have heard if they heard those words from Jesus? They would have said, hey, I know what He's talking about. It's happened before in our history. And they thought they were okay. And they weren't. Can I put a spiritual overlay on this for us, Community Covenant Church? Because I believe that Jesus is not only speaking to the church in Sardis a couple thousand years ago, He's speaking to the church today here in the United States. And He's speaking to Community Covenant Church as well as a part of that. And I think there are a lot of churches that are kind of going, hey, we've got it all together. Our ministry is fine. We've got our buildings. We've got this going on and that going on. And I think that what Jesus is saying to us today, especially in the evangelical church here in the United States, and to community covenant churches, what He would say to the people back then, don't let apathy, don't let a lack of passion set in. Don't think that you've got it all together and you're okay. Remember why you're here. Remember those questions that God is going to ask you that day when you meet Him face to face. What did you do with my son Jesus? What did you do with what I gave you? And who did you bring with you? We are here as a church to become like Jesus together. To make a difference in people's lives like Jesus did. Inviting people into a life-changing and eternity-changing relationship with Him. And I've got to ask us today, are you awake? Are you awake spiritually? Are you alive? Are you alert? Are you staying connected with Jesus and growing in a heart of worship for Him? Are we growing in our love for Him as we sang about this morning? And are we growing and staying connected to Him so that out of the overflow of that, we can then be used to be a blessing to others in this world in which He's placed us? I mean, think about it. We've said it these past weeks of the series. Each of these churches got the message and they began to live into the message that Jesus gave them. They responded. How do we know that? Because within a few generations after writing Revelation to the churches there in Asia Minor, Asia Minor went from becoming one of the most evil and corrupt provinces in the Roman Empire to becoming about 80 to 85% Christian. I don't know about you, but that staggers my imagination. I mean, this was a corrupt and an evil society, as we're going to see in just a few moments. And yet, within a few generations after Jesus writing these letters to the churches, Asia Minor became 80 to 85% followers of Christ. 
they got the message. And they lived into the message. And instead of being like a country club church where church was all about them and making their members comfortable in the way that they did things and making sure nobody's feathers got ruffled, you know, They didn't live into the last seven words of the church. What are the last seven words of the church? We never did it that way before. I love the expression, come weal or woe. Actually, I don't love it. But it's true sometimes in the church, come weal or woe. The only status we know is quo. And we live in the life of the church like church is about us. Church is not about us. Church is about those folks out there who need Jesus. And that's why Jesus says we're called to be a blessing to others in the world around us. That all families, all people around us will be blessed. And we're called to bless people by loving them in the name of Jesus. Loving them out of the overflow of our love for Jesus. And yet the evangelical church today is all caught up in let's make everybody comfortable and not ruffle any feathers. And when they complain, we run around trying to make sure we fix everything the way they want it to be. And I've got to wonder when we do that if we are not sacrificing the next generation on the altar of our personal preferences. Jesus does not want us sacrificing the next generation on the altar of our personal preferences of how to do church. Or we could talk about how to navigate this pandemic. Because we all have preferences about what we want to do with the masters. I got my master. I was going to have it up here and pull it out. But we all have our preferences as to what we want to do with them. And I heard recently about a church down in Wichita where people who wear masks are calling those who don't. Republicans. And people who don't wear masks are calling those who do Democrats. And the church is dividing. I think Jesus is saying to us in this message to Sardis, don't sacrifice our witness to the people out there on the altar of our personal preferences. Be our brothers and sisters keeper. And understand we're not all going to see each things each the same way. Understand that there are going to be different opinions. And we respect that. We love people. We let people live into how they need to live into this. And we take care of them in the ways we need to care for people. And we'll talk about that more hopefully in the next weeks as we kind of make some decisions of what we're going to do moving forward. But we've got to stop arguing about this stuff, church. We've got to stop dividing from each other over it. We've got to stop saying, oh, this person's stupid because they believe that, or this person doesn't know the science because they believe that. We've got to come together and love each other in the name of Jesus because Jesus says, by this will all people know that you are my followers, if you what? Love them. Love I asked us this morning, what is it that's going on in our world that distracts us from our main purpose of going out there and loving people in the name of Jesus and blessing them? What is it that goes on in here in church that 
bugs us and because it's not the way we want things to happen, the way we like it to. And we allow it to distract us and we complain about it instead of being more concerned about a world out there that needs to know Jesus. Are we more desperately now than ever with all that's going on in our culture and in our society? We are called to be people in a church who do not sacrifice our witness to the next generation on the altar of our personal preferences. If we're going to be that way, if we're going to become like Jesus and live into being followers of His, like the people in Asia Minor lived into that, then we've got to have a growing relationship with Him. We've got to We've got to develop a, a heart and a culture of worship and prayer. And, and, and we've got to be able to come to love Jesus more and more as we walk through life each day, spending time with Him, worshiping Him, praying, spending time in His Word, growing in our love for Him so that we can become more like Him instead of looking more like the world around us. And that's the point that Jesus makes when He says to the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, verse 4, He says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with Me dressed in white, for they are worthy. What does He mean they haven't soiled their clothes? Well, let's take a look at the culture of what was going on back then. What was happening back in Sardis is one of the main mythological gods and goddesses that they worshipped was a goddess by the name of Artemis. Artemis was her Greek name. Diana was the Roman name. We see both of those in the Scripture. There were some of the churches in Asia Minor that were worshipping Artemis pretty significantly. And Artemis was a goddess of fertility. Artemis was a goddess of fertility. And, and, and what they would do on the annual festival of Artemis worship each year, they would have an annual festival, they'd gather at an Artemis altar outside of the town, and they'd all be dressed in white. And they'd begin to work themselves up into an ecstasy and into a frenzy of worship. And then all kinds of, all kinds of uh, orgy behavior began to happen. And then they would make their way through the streets of Sardis to the Artemis Temple. And there at the Artemis Temple, they would be whipped up into this frenzy and they would be cutting themselves in this incantation for this goddess of fertility. And blood would be getting on their white garments. Their garments would become soiled. And they would enter into all kinds of orgy behavior going on there in the temple with the priests and the priestesses of this cult worship. All kinds of crazy stuff going on. And yet realize that a few generations after that, Sardis was 80% plus followers of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? How did that happen? How did it happen? Well, how it happened was that archaeologists, when they uncovered the temple there in, of Artemis worship in Sardis, discovered that there in the temple 
was a church. A Christian church. It was just this little 35 by 45 foot part of the temple. But it was a place where the followers of Jesus went and worshipped and rubbed shoulders with the culture around them and were a witness to people blessing them with the love of Jesus. You see, the church in Sardis didn't end up going off and hiding away in their safe little communities against all that was going on in the world around them. They put a church right in the Temple of Artemis. And archaeologists tell us that Christians who were running businesses would put crosses on their businesses, identifying that they were followers of Jesus, even though, as we know, as we've been seeing these last few weeks, the result of that was that they would lose a lot of business and might end up living in poverty. They got out into their world, as Jesus calls us to in John 15 and in John 17, and as he tells us to be followers of his in this world, not to be of the world and like the world, but to be in the world and rub shoulders with the very people who need to know about Jesus. These people lived the words of Matthew 5, 13 through 16, where Jesus calls you and me to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And a few weeks ago, we talked about some of what that means. And it means we don't just stay in our own little cloisters, but we've got to get out in the world. Understand, that's what he's talking about when he talks about being the salt of the earth. Salt was put on meat as a preservative to keep it from decaying and rotting. Salt's got to get on the meat. We've got to get out there in the world. Another great analogy of salt of the earth from that day, something that we don't understand in our culture today because we just we don't we don't burn manure for fuel, right? I mean none of us do. I would assume if you have a wood burning stove, you don't burn manure for fuel. But in that day, in Jesus' day, they did. I mean, they're in a region of the world where there's not a lot of trees, not a lot of wood. And so what did they do to burn fuel? They would take the dried olive pressings and they would use those because they would burn hot and they would burn a long time, but you only had so much to last through the year. And when that was over, they would go out and they would pick up the animal droppings that had dried. And about a hundred or so years before Jesus' time, someone had figured out if you put salt in the manure and you mix it together, it burns hotter. And it burns longer, about five or ten times hotter and five or ten times longer. And, and, And so salt got mixed in with the manure. And then after a while, when it lost its chemical properties to be able to burn hotter and cause the manure to be able to do that, they would take it out of the ovens, And they would pitch it out. And that's Jesus is talking about there in Matthew 5, about not being salty enough so that you end up being thrown out and it gets trampled on. And Jesus is saying to you and to me, as he's saying to Sardis, we've got to get out there in the world in which we live and rub shoulders with people, even sometimes if we feel like we're getting out in a big manure pot. Make a difference, he's saying, in the world in which we live. Don't hide in our safe little cloister. Yes, we come together in this cloister to grow in community together. But we do that so we can become more like Jesus. So we can go out there in the world around us. 
and live for Him and be difference makers in this world. And when Sardis did that, when they got the message and they lived it, they exploded with growth. And not only did they explode with growth and see that community become 80 to 85% Christian in a few generations after these words of Jesus to them, but they also received from Jesus a wonderful promise. And that promise is for you and for me as well. If we will live into these words and we will understand the questions that Jesus is going to ask us and be ready to answer those well. When you and I get to heaven one day. Because what he says to us in verses 5 and 6 of Revelation 3 through the church at Sardis is the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. And I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. The word really is more translated, more accurately, not blot out, but cut out. I will never cut out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and His angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying. What's He talking about when He says, I'll never cut your name out of the book of life? Well, what He's doing there is He's drawing on the analogy that every one of them knew about because many of them had been Jewish people. And in Sardis, we know they had one of the largest Jewish synagogues in the ancient world. When archaeologists uncovered Sardis, what they uncovered was a Jewish synagogue that was about the size of a football field. Maiden in that day. But what they also discovered was as they uncovered walls and as they uncovered pillars of walls, they found on these walls all these different names. And what they surmised was those were the names of the people who were part of the community of faith there in that synagogue. But then what they also discovered was that there were places where names had been cut off, where names had been chiseled off the wall, and new names had been put in over them. And what they are speculating is that those were people who were Jewish folks that became Messianic Jews, became followers of Jesus, came to faith in Jesus. And so the community of Jewish people would cut their names off the wall and put new names on as new names came into their community. And Jesus is saying, I will never do that to you. What a great promise. That when we come to Him in faith, and we trust in Him, and we live for Him, and we're a blessing to the world, we, we can know that He will never, never reject us. He will declare us before God His Father when we come to Him one day in then what is the image of being dressed in white all about? It's that bridal imagery, right? It's bridal imagery that John talks about later in Revelation 7 and in Revelation 19 where he talks about God's people, the bride of Christ. Now, I know this is a tough analogy for us guys because it's tough to be thinking about us guys being a bride, but that's the analogy the Scripture uses. We're the bride of Christ, and Jesus is the bridegroom. And one day He's coming back for us. And He will bring us to be with Him. And He will come and get His bride. And He says, when we live for Him, when we trust Him in faith, we will be dressed in white, white linens that won't get soiled when we aren't like the world around us. But instead, we are becoming like Jesus. 